and uh, we'll move on from there. So we're going to be in Colossians 1, starting in the third verse. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth. The gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. When the gospel was planted in this group of people because they heard the word of truth, it began to grow and it manifests in their actions. But one of the things that it says is that they understood God's grace and all of its truth. And today as I began to meditate on that, I thought, you know, that's really, that's pretty rare. Uh, ORU graduate who started a church called Higher Dimension that grew and was unbelievably powerful for the Lord around the time that I got born again, misunderstood God's grace to the point where God's grace was changed into a license for immorality. All of the man's friends, his former professors, the dean of the college, wrote letters, talked to him, came in person to talk to him, and nobody could bring about a change of his mind. So today he teaches that there is nothing wrong with a homosexual lifestyle. He teaches a doctrine called total reconciliation that basically says that all powers, whether demonic or satanic or not, are all going to be saved. And he calls this God's grace. Now tonight, my message is not about his error. The point is, is that many people have embraced the word of truth and they've heard about God's grace, but they don't understand God's grace in all of its truth. Jude speaks of people who have taken, people who do not have the Spirit, and have taken God's grace and made it a license for immorality. So I want to re-examine what we've come from and where we're going and see what biblical grace is in that regard. So turn with me to Proverbs 16. Don't you love to hear stories about people that started in their parents' basement and today uh, rule their industry, you know, or story of somebody who didn't have shoes but became the greatest marathon runner that there ever was. Each of us have a story similar to that, though we may not often emphasize it or think about it. You in Proverbs 16? When you get to a scripture, tell me, there. It'll be the 16th chapter, 25th verse. If you don't know this one, it's because you haven't been in church long, and that's okay. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Most of us have gone about some portion of our life simply doing what seemed like the next right thing to do. But the Word is emphatically clear about this. The next right thing to do, as determined by us, will result in our physical and spiritual death. Now, this is so important that it's repeated twice in Proverbs. But hang a right and go to Jeremiah. We're going to book jump here just a little bit until we get a point out there. What God does for us is He introduces His Word. He introduces His Word so that you have something besides just your own ability in the 21st chapter of Jeremiah. You have something besides just your own ability to choose what is right and wrong. 
Because when it's left up to us and we choose just the next right thing to do, the end is destruction. So in the 21st chapter of Jeremiah, the people are facing a difficult choice. They're being told that God's judgment is coming upon their country, coming upon their land and upon their leadership. And what they need to do is submit to the power that is coming to attack them. How many of you would like to hear the message that says someone is going to break into your house, but I want you to submit to them? Probably not an easy thing to do. Was it any easier to accept a gospel that says when somebody curses you, bless them? God's Word will often tell you to do the exact opposite of what you would think is the next right thing to do. And therefore, a choice is set before us. The right that we feel like we should do, but that the Bible says will end in our destruction, or the right that God tells us to do, and all of your senses revolt and say, I don't think so. So in the 21st chapter of Jeremiah, I want to pick up in the 8th verse. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what Yahweh says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will, will die by the sword, famine or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. He will escape with his life. He goes on to elaborate on this on great length. Put yourself in their shoes. These are Hebrews. They've heard the word of the Lord. Their city's been established by the Lord. And now he's telling them to abandon it, to abandon the priesthood, to abandon the temple, to abandon the articles of God in the temple. How easy would that be to do? And yet, all of us come from a history of choices that if you look back in your life, you can see consistently we chose to do what was expedient, what felt right, rather than what God has said to do. And sometimes you truthfully didn't know what God said to do. You just did whatever seemed right. But in any case, you can look back and see what the Bible calls in 1 Peter an empty way of life. Turn to 1 Peter. Actually, I'll just read it to you. You can hang out there. That way I don't wear out your precious little fingers. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, you'll hear the 18th verse here. I've got to get out of the book of Revelations to get there. It's only one S on Revelation. There we go. 1 Peter... 1 in the 18th verse. Listen to how Peter says this. He's reminding Christians about it. He says, Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. That's not exactly a glowing recommendation or a glowing commendation of the time period in your life before you met Jesus, is it? It's called an empty way of life, a way that leads to destruction. Having life and death set before you, our lives were death. When we view God's grace, there is only one position to view it from. It's those who were completely surrounded and swallowed by death, but by the grace of God are being brought to life. There is a disease that plagues people. When we get successful, we forget about the times in which we were not successful. How many people do you know that went through a time period in their life that was difficult? Let's just, for instance, say jail. But as soon as they get out of jail, a few years go by, and they feel as if they're on top of the world, never could imagine being back in that place, 
and before long are making the very same mistakes that put them in it in the first place. Well, that's easy to see with jail. We can talk about recidivism rates and see that. But what about in our spiritual lives? One of the things that Paul praised the Colossian church for was they grasped God's grace in all of its truth. Tonight, during the brief time that I have with you, because our services are condensed on Wednesday, I want to look at the ways in which we can grasp God's grace in our lives in all of its truth. And part of that starts with a reflection on what your life looked like before. Saints, it's sin. It's horrible. It's wretched. It ought to make us all just want to lose our lunch. When you hear Christians, me included, reminiscing about the former life as if it were, boy, when I was lost, I would have... Or before I got saved, I had... Have you ever heard a testimony that went like this? Before I got saved, I had money, and I had women, and I had success. And Why are you telling me that? The Word says it's an empty way of life, bent on destruction. Sometimes having taken a bath, we forget what was washed off of us. And you spend enough time in the church, or your children grow up in the church, never really realizing or remembering what it was like to live in that empty way of life where you had a great big hole in your chest and nothing could fill it. No amount of anything could fill it. Well, I still remember it. And grasping God's grace and all of its truth means that when I serve God today, it's with a remembrance that I was once a slave in Egypt and now He's brought me into a new life. And this ought to color my every act of service. It ought to color my every word. If people see the church as self-righteous and snobbish, you know what that means? The church is not grasping God's grace and all of its truth. They're grasping it as someone who is now delivered who has never been stained with sin. And this is simply not what the Word presents. I thought to illustrate this point, I would read to you out of Leviticus. So go ahead and turn to Leviticus. You'll be in the 13th chapter. I wanted to illustrate something graphic to you that might... If you began reading in the 13th chapter, what you would see is that from time to time in Israel, a blemish would appear on somebody's skin. Now, I know that hasn't ever happened to anybody in here. In my household, there are magnifying mirrors with, you know, 100,000 lumen lights designed to shine right off of these mirrors so that Somebody in my house, look, Judah's not here, we'll pick on him, so that Judah can see if there's the smallest blemish in his complexion. Now, nobody in here, is, is it important to you whether or not your complexion's clear or not, huh? You never snuck into another room and maybe put something on your face to hide a blemish, right? Well, in Israel, if you had a blemish, you had to go present yourself to a priest. This priest had to examine you. And he had to go, oh, well, you know, it's got a kind of a reddish hue to it and white spots. We're going to quarantine you for seven days. How would you like to be quarantined because of a zit on your nose? I couldn't preach half the time. Then he examines it again, and if it's gone away, praise God, you get to be readmitted. But if it hasn't, he examines it still further. And at some point, something happens. And in the 45th verse, I want you to hear the result of being found as one with an infectious skin disease. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. Let his hair be unkempt. 
cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as the infection remains, he's unclean. He must live alone and live outside the camp. Can you imagine? Now, everything that revolves around life is inside the camp. Where's the tabernacle? Inside the camp. Where are the priests? Inside the camp. Where's mom and dad? Inside the camp. Where's my food? Inside the camp. This is cutting you off from everything in your social sphere. And why? Because you're unclean. This is the biblical picture of men and women before we are cleaned by Jesus. They believed in it so strongly under the Mosaic Law that they must shout out a proclamation before you. In your clothing, your wardrobe, it from a distance could be seen to be torn. Your hair was not kept in a certain style so that people could see from a distance. But if they suffered from myopia and they got too close, you had to warn them by yelling, I'm unclean! I'm unclean! Can you imagine what that must have been like? Aside from being ostracized by your peers, can you imagine having to announce to every human being that came close to you, I'm unclean? for fear that if they touched you, they would be unclean too. Friends, I don't know how this kind of message preaches to you, but I remember when even doing my very best, doing the right in my own eyes, everything I touched became unclean. No matter who it was, no matter how it was, with the best of intentions, I managed to soil everybody's garment. Now, the whole time, in my own eyes, I was trying to do what was right. I had my own little moral code that I was operating under. And I believed in it passionately. But when I look back over a few short years, all it had produced was death. Turn with me to the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, you'll be in the 17th chapter. I want to start in the 10th verse just so that we can grasp grace in all of its truth. Grace in all of its truth. Jesus has been teaching and He has offered a parable uh, about the way a master and his servants interact. And the summation of his parable is found in the 10th verse, and then I'm going to go on to read. He says, So also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. When we talk about grasping grace in all of its truth, it is a delicate balance between a sense of entitlement because Jesus is giving you the kingdom and a knowledge and an awareness that you did nothing to deserve it. When we're reflecting on the empty way of life that was handed down to us and having to pronounce unclean, unclean everywhere we go, it would take a really extraordinary person to accept you in that position. Have you ever seen two people that got married and one knew in advance the other one had AIDS? Hmm? It doesn't happen very often. I've seen it a few times on TV and I was overwhelmed with uh, one thought. They really love each other or they are really stupid. 
Because who would want to join in a lifelong covenant with someone that they knew had the potential to kill them just through normal life's relationships? Well, you'd have to really love somebody in that scenario or you'd really be stupid. When we apply that kind of logic to God, it's impossible to say that He's stupid. So you're left with only one conclusion as we read this next verse. On His way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As He was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met Him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice. What are they supposed to call out? You can say it. Unclean! Unclean! They stood at a distance and they called something out, but is it what was prescribed by the law? They said, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Why would they need pity? Because they're ostracized by every other human being on the planet. Why? Because they were born with a fatal disease. Saints, we were born with a fatal disease. Every one of us in this room, black, white, red, yellow, makes no difference. We all descended from a human being named Adam who passed along a sinful nature to us so that we rightfully should have to approach each other at a distance and yell unclean because we have the potential to make each other unclean. I have not been able to help it most of my life. God made me a leader from a very early age. When I was lost, though, those same leadership skills and principles and in a loose sense of the word, anointing was there. And no matter what I intended to use it for, no matter how good my intentions were, it made everybody around me unclean. It was always the ringleader pushing people a little further than they should have gone into wickedness. The whole time out of a sense of camaraderie or something like that. I needed a bell around me so people could hear me coming at a distance saying, unclean, unclean. But these men saw something first century rabbi. They saw something in what they heard about him. After all, he's already sent out his apostles to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cleanse lepers. So they had a hope. Perhaps the whole world sees it's unclean. Maybe this first century rabbi named Yeshua will have pity on us and see us as something more. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When He saw them, He said, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. If you saw ten people who were outcast in society, Ten people who had no hope for experiencing human contact again. And as they obeyed the voice of Yeshua, they were made clean. Wouldn't you think you would have ten very grateful human beings? Ten human beings who were thoroughly entrenched in an idea? Oh, I didn't deserve this, not at all. But look what He's done for me. Could you expect one of these lepers to be at the next week saying, the problem with you, young lady, is you just don't wear your hair the right way. And you, young man, the problem with you is you just like jewelry too much. And you, a permanent, you're going to hell. Can you imagine that? 
And yet you can find that in any city, anywhere in the United States. And I just happen to pick a certain genre. We could do it over a great many things. Do you think that they really cared what someone's doctrinal stance was on a particular subject at this point? What they knew is that when the whole world saw them as unclean, somebody was willing to make them whole. Why could Jesus, and it doesn't mention here that He touched them, but why could Jesus touch them? The law says don't do it. The law says don't come close. It seems that a touch of Jesus will take something that is unclean and declare it clean. At the moment you impact Jesus, the moment He impacts you, your life begins to change. And no longer do you have to yell, unclean, unclean, but you can yell, I'm clean, I'm clean. Come on, saints, do you not remember that in your life? And Preston Cole stood in a shower calling on Jesus and he said he felt clean for the first time in his life. I know exactly when it happened to me. I felt him all around me, all over my room. I felt him inside of me. And I knew I was clean. But what about the hour before that? I was like a leper. I made everybody else unclean. My best efforts only brought death. And I was trapped in a rotting flesh. Were you so different? See, we need to carry with us a testimony that grabs grace in all of its truth. This doesn't mean that we walk around with our heads down saying, oh, I'm just a poor old sinner. No, no. You were, but don't you forget it for a moment. You were not born righteous. You've not had it together all of your life, and none of you were as pretty last month as you are now. None of you. Because we're ever progressing towards the King of Kings. And He's still polishing. What a view of grace that is. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. How many got healed? One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked Him. He was a Samaritan. (laughs) Would you think that among lepers there would be a social rank? I mean, let's be honest. Let's, for argument's sake, say, let's pick jail again. Wouldn't you think that one poor miserable soul in jail is just the same as another poor miserable soul in jail? All you have to do is do a little prison ministry and you find out very much not so. There is a hierarchy within every social structure that there's ever been. We went to the dumps in Matamoros, Mexico, and we're surprised to find out that there are some entrepreneurial young men there that are like the Donald Trump in the uh, system, and there are some that fall beneath that. There's a hierarchy everywhere you go. Well, the only thing that could be worse than being a leper is being a leper from Samaria. Because even when the Samaritan leper is made clean, some wouldn't view him as clean. Kind of like Winston Churchill had a conversation with that woman. She said, Sir, I perceive that you're drunk. He said, Yes, this is I perceive that you are ugly. The difference between you and I is in the morning I shall be sober while you will still be ugly. This man is a Samaritan even after he's been made clean. 
Do you think that maybe this is why He comes back and none of the others did? What is it about human nature that when God's done for you the very thing that you've cried out to Him day and night, grant me justice, O God, that we forget about Him when He does? It's because we don't grasp grace and all of its truth. Jesus asked him, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith or trust has made you well. Saints, if you look in the mirror today, I want you to remember two things. One is that you were once a leper. And everything you touched, everything you did, simply spread more disease. But while you were a leper in that state, Jesus made you well. So one is the way in which you came to Him. And the second is, you're still quite naturally a foreigner to Him. But He's adopted you. He's made you whole. We ought never act as if we own the kingdom of God. We ought never act as if God is our cosmic genie. And if we can quote the right incantations from His Word, He's emboldened to obey us. There's a spiritual arrogance that comes from not grasping grace and all of its truth. But when we do, boy, can we be powerful. Because no amount of blessing poured through your life will erase from you the memory of just how far He has brought you. See, this allows us to be ministers of mercy rather than judgment. And friends, if you haven't read it, James 2.13 says, Mercy will triumph over judgment. In my life, Eric has many times loved to bring the fire, the heat. And the stories that I tell you are about the time when I stood and faced down 900 Catholic apologists or stood and looked flat-footed and said, you're going to hell to another human being. But the greatest moment in my life was when the leper was made clean. It's also the most powerful. Turns me to Hebrews. Actually, turns me to Colossians. We're to get back there. Good, good. Are you all quiet tonight because you're tired or you're just contemplating? Good. Not constipated. Contemplating. Contemplate. <laughs> All right, Colossians 1. We're going to start in the ninth verse. I want you to begin to think about the state at which you came to Him and what the Word says He's done for you. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants you full of the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How many of you would stand up in here today and say, I am full of the knowledge of His will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Most of the time we walk around scratching our heads saying, I don't know what He wants. This is not God's will for our lives. And we pray this in order that you may Live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. Now he's going to list some things that please Him. Bearing fruit in every good work, 
growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance, patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Oh my! God will fill you with the knowledge of His will to the point where your life shows it's a life that's worthy of His calling upon you. And in what ways is it displayed? By bearing fruit, by being patient, by enduring, by resting in the knowledge that He has qualified you. Let's start with disqualified. Any of you ever been disqualified? I went one time to a comedy club. Went to a comedy club with some of in this church. I'd never been to one. I didn't know how it worked. They warned me. And you know, from time to time, I, I can be a little outspoken. And I made a suggestion during the audience participation part, and apparently I used a phrase we weren't supposed to use. I didn't mean to. You know, I didn't know. Or maybe I did know and didn't care. I don't know. The point is, they came out and put a brown paper bag on my head. Yeah, Nick, you were there, weren't you? Maybe not. Yeah, some people were there. What an uncomfortable feeling. In front of an entire room, I was disqualified from participating. You wouldn't think that I would care. You wouldn't think. Why? I mean, why would I care? I'm the pastor of a church. I'm the father of three children. The husband of a beautiful wife. Why would I care? Because none of us want to be disqualified. And yet, that's what every one of us in this room were before someone invested in you and qualified you to share in God's glorious inheritance in the saints. How good is that? When we minister, we need to remember that it is God Himself who has qualified us. Not your study. Not your great straining and yearning for a vision of Jesus. I get sick of hearing that. I mean, I love, I love Dramatic testimonies. And you know mine, Jesus spoke to me and knocked me down. But sometimes when we tell those testimonies, it's, I sought God, and I sought God, and I sought God. There were ten bears and I fought them off. There was snow uphill and downhill on the way to school. There was, there was, and, and it sounds like we're, we're reading Beowulf, you know. I drank from the horn and the ocean was on the other end, but I drank it. As if it was our great effort that brought us near to God. Friends, that's nowhere in the scriptural account. Nowhere. It's true that when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. But the state in which all of us came to know Jesus is thoroughly disqualified and leprous, but because of His grace, He qualified you and cleaned you. It was not because of our effort. Is there anybody here that would strongly disagree with that point? No, it would be a dangerous thing to do because our lives since show our lives since being saved show that we don't deserve what He's done. Is there anybody in here that may have sinned at least once since you were born again? Yeah. See, it's not been by our own might or righteousness. Understanding grace and all of its truth. Skip down to the 19th verse. If you had been ostracized outside of Israel as a leper and somebody said, no, I qualify you to come and stand in our presence, you'd be pretty happy. Well, how about this? If uh, it was said, and through him, this 20th verse, 
Let's just start in 19. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Not only qualified to be able to stand among the assembly, but through this one man, Jesus, reconciled you. Well, what does that mean? There was a time in my life when I had to hide my car so that it wasn't repossessed. Some of you knew that and some of you didn't. Come to church, you'll get to hear all the rest of the stories about my life. We literally parked it in somebody else's driveway so that if the tow truck came, it didn't see it in my driveway. Even when the threat of towing was gone, I was qualified to drive the vehicle. You know what was not gone? The debt I owed on it. I still had to pay it. The equivalent here, what has been done, the leper's not only been brought in the camp, but every debt he's ever had has been completely erased. That is an amazing thing. How many of you could use a fresh start in life? Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus has done. And you know what? Not just once or twice. He does it again and again and again and demands of anybody else in His kingdom that they offer it to you as well. Can you name a preacher that has fallen in the last ten years? Of course you can. Don't you dare. Did you want a second start? Why don't they deserve one? Grace and all of its truth. But what they did was... You were a leper. You were also a leper. We might should tattoo that on our forehead. I was a leper. You'd have to put it backwards so when you looked in the mirror it read correctly. You know what that would do for us? It would allow us to grasp grace in all of its truth. Read the 21st through 23rd verse with me. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the Gospel, He will present us free from accusation or blemish. If you had been the leper, how good would it be to know not only are you included in the number, not only are there no deaths counted against you, but nobody would ever be able to examine you and go, I see another spot, throw them out. Free from accusation forever. And what was the criteria for this? You have to continue in your trust. How pleasing do you think it is to the King of Kings when those who He has done this for spend all of their time going to pick apart all of the others that He's also done this for. But Lord, Lord, still see blemishes on Darren. What if Darren appeals to God against me and before I've repented, God acts? Would I really be held guiltless? See, this really shapes our understanding of the way Christians should interact with each other. We are to be the fastest people on earth to make peace with one another. My pastor and I got a chance to make peace this last week. You hear about church splits all the time. When's the last time you heard about a church reunion? 
Before you give us a hand clap, it took eight long years for that to happen. How sad. But praise God, it's done. You know what got in the way? Leprosy. That which we had been clean from was all we could see about each other. That's so sad. That's not grace in all of its truth. And how can I expect God to apply grace in my life if I won't apply it in others? Does that bring to mind any words of Jesus? If you don't show mercy, you'll be shown no mercy. Go to Colossians 2. We're going to read the 6th and 7th verse. This is my way of cheating and reading you the whole book of Colossians in one message. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Continue to live in Him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. I don't want a show of hands, but it would be okay if you nodded or said something. Is there anybody in here that has more debt than your annual salary? Yeah. Is there anybody in here that has five times as much debt as your annual salary? Because that's a, that's a pretty average American household. How thankful would you be if somebody wiped it all out for you? You'd be pretty thankful, huh? You might even at every meal thank God that that had happened, huh? You might every person you meet speak to tell them there's hope. Drowning in debt and God or Bob paid it off, whatever. You would be excited that somebody had done that for you and thankfulness would flow from your life. So what does it say about a Christian? The only thing that flows from your life is this look as if you're sucking on a lemon. What does it say about a Christian if they hide in the confines of their home as if they are still the leper that is the outcast? What does it say about a Christian if they work to exclude others? What does any of that say? Does it maybe say that we don't have quite the grasp on God's grace and all of its truth that we should? Or is it only those people over there who use God's grace as a license for immorality? See, I've read that scripture in Jude so many times and I actually have a denominational name written next to it. I'm not going to tell you which. One day, you know, Jude will inherit my Bible. You can ask him. But I see it so clearly as, wow, that's that doctrine that encourages sin. It's also the lifestyle that we live that does all of these things. When we're not thankful for what God does and it does not overflow in our lives, when we live as ostracized or work to exclude others, isn't it the same thing? I think that it is. Turn with me to Hebrews 13. I've struggled with this for a long time. Have you ever seen an athlete that uh, gets into the paper or something? And they, I remember Charles Barkley was the first that I ever heard say it. Charles Barkley was a dominant basketball player at the time that he was. Now he just looks fat and bold. But he said, I am not a role model for your kids. He said that. He said, don't use me as a role model. I'm not a role model. I don't want to be a role model for your kids. The problem is that the position that he held was a role model for the kids. He was just choosing not to be a good one at the time. Now, since then, I understand lots has changed in his life, and this is not about Charles Barkley, it's about Eric Stevens. There are times in which I have said, and I mean this in a holy sense most of the time, 
that what you as a church should see from me is that I'm operating under an anointing and to imitate that. But I'm also very quick to say I also allow you to see the flaws in my life and that that's for your benefit. This is uh, how you learn, how you grow, how we uh, have intimacy, all those things. But you know what it's not an excuse for? Flaws in my life. I'm never going to work to hide them, but I also can't work to justify them. Listen to what Hebrews 13 says, because I'm a pastor. Listen to what it says. It's uh, 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. When you examine my life, you know what you're supposed to see? Something that you want to imitate. Now, in many ways, I'm proud because I think that God has put into me some things that you can imitate. Other times I read this and I'm horrified. Because if you imitated everything in my life, I probably wouldn't like you. (laughs) Our lives are supposed to be something. Our way of life is supposed to be something that others would imitate. You know what it needs to be marked by? A grasp on God's grace and all of its truth as evidenced in the thankfulness in which you serve God. Paul also told the Corinthians church, you don't have to turn there, tell them in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, I'm going to remind you guys of my way of life. Yeah, you can hit that with a hammer. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10, he said, hey guys, uh, Timothy is going to come to you. Uh, He will remind you of my way of life. Too long we have thought that Christianity is what we say. We've thought that Christianity is what we do. What Eric Hill, I wasn't supposed to mention his name, but what he reminded me of this morning when he called me was that it's really your way of life that people imitate. And you know what I want people to see? Not just my doctrine. Not just what I believe or some fantastic experience that I've had with Jesus and I've had some fantastic ones. I want you to see a way of life that you can imitate that no longer makes people unclean, but announces to the world, you can be clean. You can be clean. Sometimes Christians are the most divisive, hateful, mean people on the planet. And all anybody knows about them is that they hate everyone, they don't like anything that's on TV or in the movies, and they can take the most innocent child's cartoon and make something ugly out of it. I don't want to be known as that. I want to be somebody who brings life. As we finish this message up, because we only have five or six more minutes, let's go ahead and look at Colossians 3. We've now covered every chapter in Colossians, and I've just hit the highlights for you. Imagine what would happen if you took the time to read this book on your own, especially after your pastor pointed it out, gave you some highlights, gave you something to read and think about. Now you could read the entire book, which is only four chapters, and you could probably do it in 15 minutes that would change your life. I want to leave you with one concept. How often have you known that you need to put on Christ, right? I mean, we all know that. We need to be clothed with Christ. Very often you've also known that you need to put away old things, like uh, we don't lie anymore, we don't steal anymore, we we don't steal anymore. You don't do certain things anymore, right? We all know that. What you may not have known is to be able to put off the old life, you have to put on the new. See, it's not like clothes. Clothes is, I take this off so that I can put something on. If you approach Jesus that way, it will never work. 
If you stand on the outside and say, Lord, when I quit stealing, when I quit thinking bad thoughts, when I quit hating, when I quit doing all of these things, then I will clothe myself with you. It will never happen. With God, it's more like this. You put Him on so that you can put the other off. You don't want to hate anymore? Walk around in love and love will conquer it. You don't want to steal anymore? Walk around in charity and charity will conquer it. See if you hear that. By the way, a parallel passage is Ephesians 4.20 through the 5th chapter and 1st verse. But we're going to start in uh, Colossians 3 and then we're going to close. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Key number one, we have to set like you are dialing in a mortar fire, like you're dialing in a radio, like you're dialing coordinates. You have to physically set your heart on things above. You know why? Your heart is most naturally, comfortably set on things that are on the earth. What you'll get, what you won't have if you give. What will happen to you if. All of those things. A heart set on above is only concerned with what the will is that comes from above. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, I can't help it. I just He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Don't you love God? Have any of you actually been raised with Christ? I mean, did I miss it? Are you all sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory right now? And yet He credits it to you as if you're there. Spiritually, I get it. You've been raised with Christ. Physically, it hasn't happened. And He speaks as if it has. That ought to tell us something right there about the heart of God. He credits people with the good they've not even yet done in the hopes that they will do it. How about that? When's the last time in anticipation of a conversation with someone you credited them with the right response before you went? When you sat in your bed and you played it through over and over and over in your mind, how many times did it go so that they went, oh yes, brother, God bless you, of course. That's not usually what we credit people with, is it? And yet the very state Jesus found you in was one where He credited you as clean when you were unclean. We need a faith that presumes the best in each other and encourages each other to live up to it. Instead of saying, well, that's just Cody. Cody's always that way. Maybe when I'm thinking about Cody, I could assume, of course with Cody it's easy, the godly stance and then allow him to live up to it. Doesn't that sound like a better... Do you want people to expect you to fail or expect you to succeed? Of course. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Do you remember that he said you were already seated with Christ? You can't be seated with Christ with all of these things. You can't. One will displace the other. So he's going to clarify it. Watch, he keeps going. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. 
anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its Creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. You want to know how to put away the works of the flesh? Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So often we think of Christians as people who don't do certain things. If you are clothed in compassion... How are you going to have slander or malice or rage? If you are clothed in kindness, how are you going to do any of those things to your brother? If you're clothed in humility and gentleness and patience, how will you do any of those works of the flesh? The best way that I know is not to teach you what not to do. There's a whole religious system out there that will give you pages upon pages of what Christians don't do. But if we teach you what you're supposed to be and you strive to live up to that in thankfulness, you naturally won't do those other things. Forgive as the Lord forgave. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Saints, if I could admonish you with anything as we close, is that Christianity is not defined by what you don't do. And your righteousness is not defined as, look at me now, I used to be this way, but I'm not any longer. Your righteousness is, while I was yet a sinner, He died for me. He rescued me from the dominion of darkness. He qualified me to share in the kingdom of the Son He loved. I was a leper and in some ways still plagued with leprosy. But He's called me clean and righteous and blemish-free and spot-free. I used to do these things, but I've learned a new way of life, so I'm putting the old off as I put the new on. This will get people saved. This will give people hope. I believe that God is going to draw into this building a work that is going to shake our very foundation. I really do. I think people will drive up and down the road and be surprised at what's going on in a storefront church. But if when they come in, they're not met with a real grasp of what grace is and all of its truth, what would God be doing except pumping up one more ridiculous church that is a shame? We can't. We can't. We need to remember where we've come from so that we can offer hope to the world. We need to quit being so impressed with our doctrine and our learning that we forget to show mercy and love beyond every other Christian attribute. The Word never says that they will know we are Christians by our eschatological views. It never says that they'll know we are Christians because of our Hebraic roots. It never says they will know we are Christians because we're the only ones that can pronounce His name correctly in Hebrew. They're going to know we're Christians because we love them when the rest of the world wants to throw them out and call them unclean. When the Word says that the forceful lay hold of the kingdom, I want you to consider that the kind of force He's talking about 
is the one that will go find the abused, the spit on, the picked on, the ostracized, the one that everybody says is no good and is not worth anything, and treat them just like they were your own son, daughter, mother, or father, because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet.